Hello there. Welcome back to The Layman's Historian, episode 41, Can I, Rome's Darkest Day. Last time, we covered the culmination of Fabius the Delayer's term as dictator when he saved his rash lieutenant Minutius from a potential disaster. Today, we will see how the disaster deflected at the Battle of Geronium finally caught up with the Romans at the small Italian town of Cannae. As we remember from previous episodes, Fabius utilized his powers as dictator to restore the Romans' badly shaken confidence following the defeats at Trebia and Trasimene. Though decried by his more imperious colleagues, his delaying tactics allowed the Roman legionaries to engage their enemies in a constant series of low-level skirmishes, which, although insignificant in and of themselves, collectively helped them to once again believe they were the equals of their Carthaginian opponents. After Fabius's relinquishment of the dictatorship, one of the new consuls, Lucius Aemilius Paulus, vigorously continued Fabius's policy. He ordered his subordinates to avoid pitched battles, but seize every other opportunity to accustom the men to fighting, since he was convinced that the earlier defeats had been due to the inexperience of the new recruits. Paulus later cited this newly gained combat experience as to why the legionaries could confidently engage the enemy in a speech Polybius reports he gave to the troops. Quote, it is hard, if not impossible, to imagine that, after meeting the enemy on equal terms in minor skirmishes and usually winning, we shall lose a full-scale battle when we outnumber the enemy by more than two to one. End quote. Despite his strong words and confident demeanor in front of the troops, Paulus was less sure of a certain victory than he cared to show. A conservative and cautious member of the aristocratic patrician class, Paulus had already served one term as consul in 219 BC when he acquitted himself well in the Second Illyrian War. However, upon his return, his fellow consul Marcus Livius Salinator was charged with unfairly distributing the spoils and Paulus himself was drawn into the trial. When Salinator was convicted and removed from the consulship, Paulus narrowly avoided the same fate and emerged with a severely damaged reputation. This experience and his own natural hesitation led him to be wary of the people, and this standoffishness led to further unpopularity in Rome. By contrast, his consular colleague in 216 BC Gaius Terentius Varro had rendered himself the darling of the people by his presumptive boldness. A novus homo from a plebeian family, his father was reportedly a butcher, Varro had risen through the ranks of the Cursus Honorum by prosecuting high-ranking public officials. His demagoguery earned him vast support from among the people, but few friends among the patricians, who viewed his attacks as both malicious and dangerous. Varro had flexed his political muscles once already when he had supported raising Minutius to co-equal authority with Fabius. During the elections of 216 BC, a bitter struggle had ensued between the senatorial party and the populace for the consulship. Varro and his allies accused the senators of intentionally prolonging the war by avoiding battle with Hannibal and handicapping Minutius's efforts to defeat the invaders. If Fabius had not withheld troops from Minutius at Geronium, reasoned Varro, then Hannibal would have been defeated there and then. Instead, Fabius and his co-conspirators, 
had hindered Minutius and now threatened to drag the war out even longer by refusing to face Hannibal man to man. What was needed was a man of the people, himself perhaps, who could confront Hannibal with true Roman grit, and, in the words of Plutarch, quote, whenever he should get sight of the enemy, he would that same day free Italy from the strangers, end quote. Although untrue on nearly every level, Varro's revisionist history caught fire with the masses who eagerly elected him consul. Paulus had been elected as a counterweight to Varro's recklessness, making the relationship between the two men, in the words of Livy, quote, less like that of colleagues than of a couple of gladiators in the arena, end quote. Still, Fabius's successes and the renewed confidence in their arms made even the more cautious senators imagine that a decisive victory might once again be within grasp. Determined to leave nothing to chance, however, the Senate took the unprecedented step of authorizing the raising of four new legions, effectively doubling Rome's normal army. Neither would this new force be divided between the consuls for their separate spheres of action. Instead, the new eight legions and all the allied contingents approximately 87,000 soldiers all told, would be concentrated to rid Italy of the Hannibalic threat once and for all. To reinforce the gravity of the hour, the soldiers were required to take a legal and formally binding oath to remain in service for as long as the consuls were in the field. Before this, according to Livy, new recruits used to only swear a voluntary oath of allegiance to the commander and another voluntary oath to their unit to, quote, never leave the field to save their own skins, nor to abandon their place in the line for any purpose other than to recover or fetch a weapon, to strike an enemy, or to save a friend, End quote. This formalization of the recruitment process and intensifying of the requirements of service would be but one of many changes to come in the Roman army, changes brought on by the desperate need to counter Hannibal in Italy. During these frenzied preparations, a welcome boon arrived from Hiero, the 92-year-old king of Syracuse. His ships bore a golden statue of the goddess Victory, weighing an impressive 220 pounds, along with 300,000 measures of wheat and 200,000 of barley. Further, Hiero sent promises to provide more food to any port which Rome might name. In addition to these gifts, he sent a contingent of a thousand archers and slingers to counter the Carthaginians' own Balearic slingers and Numidian skirmishers. Finally, he sent a piece of advice, contain Hannibal in Italy and invade Africa to end the war. The Senate gratefully accepted the gifts, but politely declined the advice. Before he departed, Varro gave further inflammatory speeches to the assembly, once again decrying the patricians as being solely responsible for prolonging the war and promising a quick and decisive battle. Alarmed by Varro's calls for instant battle and fearing the worst, Fabius urged Paulus to continue his delaying strategy in order to both train the new recruits and bleed Hannibal dry. Quote, As things are, Paulus, I know your colleagues' qualities and I know your own. So it is to you alone I address myself understanding as I do that all your courage and patriotism will be in vain if our country must limp on one sound leg and one lame one. With the two of you in equal command, bad counsels will be backed by the same legal authority as good ones. For you are wrong, Paulus, if you think to find less opposition from Varro than from Hannibal. 
Hannibal is your enemy, Varro your rival, but I hardly know which will prove the more hostile to your designs. With the former, you will be contending only on the field of battle, but with the latter everywhere and always. The only way of fighting the war with Hannibal is my way. This is shown not only by the result, that teacher of fools, but by that same process of reasoning which held good before, and will continue to do so without change, so long as circumstances remain as they are. Go slowly, and all will be clear and sure. Haste is always improvident and blind. End quote. Paulus was still despondent. While he had agreed with the advice, he asked Fabius how he could hold back his co-equal colleague when even Fabius as supreme dictator had been unable to restrain his own lieutenant, Minutius. Quote, But in the event of failure, continued Paulus, I should rather face the enemy's spears than the condemnation of my compatriots. End quote. With these cheerful thoughts, Paulus set out with the greatest army that Rome had yet fielded in her history. The consuls were barely out of the city, however, when they began to quarrel. Unwilling to divide their forces, they each exercised supreme command on alternating days, leading to a confused interplay of aggression one day and caution the next. Varro continued to castigate Fabius in the senatorial class, accusing Paulus of binding his hands and robbing the soldiers of their swords. Paulus countered by conjuring up the images of Trebia and Trasimene, where the recklessness of Sempronius and Flaminius had doomed two Roman armies within recent memory. Thus they remained at an impasse, each pursuing his own preferred strategy on his day of command. As usual, Hannibal had kept abreast of all the goings-on in the Roman camp. Having captured the small town of Cannae, the Carthaginians had settled in to enjoy the large grain stores the Romans had stored there while awaiting further developments. Upon hearing the results of the Roman consular elections, Hannibal knew that the appointment of Varro signaled the return to the old style of Roman generalship, and also that at least two-thirds of the Roman legionaries were raw recruits. Thus, on the second day after the consuls left Rome, Hannibal sent out a probing attack to fall upon the advancing Roman column with horsemen and lightly armed troops. Caught unawares, the Romans were considerably disrupted until their heavy infantry managed to form a screen and support their own cavalry and skirmishers. As the Carthaginians withdrew from the Roman superior numbers, Varro believed that his glorious victory was just within reach. The next day was Paulus's turn to command. Unwilling to give battle, but unable to retreat safely, he encamped near the river Aufidus and detached strong guards to protect foragers. He spent the rest of his time arguing vehemently with Varro against giving battle. He pointed to the ground around him, which was completely flat and treeless, perfect for Hannibal to utilize his cavalry's superiority. Instead of giving the enemy this advantage, argued Paulus, the consuls should entice Hannibal to fight in more hilly or broken terrain where the legionaries would decide the battle. Varro, however, would hear none of it, and as the sun set on the 1st of August, 216 BC, everyone knew that on the following day, battle would be joined. Hannibal also realized the favor Varro had done for him. Calling his men together to encourage them after their setback the day before, Hannibal asked them to look at the countryside around them and imagine they could ask the gods for anything. In their current situation, he continued, 
What would they ask for but that they should fight the battle here, where all the advantages lay on their side? Quote, I don't think I need to say much now by way of encouraging you to be confident and resolute in the coming battle. That was needed when you had no experience in fighting the Romans, and so I used to give you examples of the way they fight in my speeches. But now that you have indisputably defeated them in three successive major battles, what morale-boosting speech could I give that would serve you better than the facts themselves? In short order, victory will bring us mastery of all Italy, an end to our current troubles, and possession of Rome's entire fortune. This battle will make you lords and masters of the world. Enough words, then. Now is the time for action. End quote. After dismissing his men, Hannibal set about devising his plan. The following morning, he rode out with a small group of officers to survey the mustering Romans. When they saw the lines upon lines and rows upon rows of Roman legionaries advancing, even his veteran lieutenants grew doubtful after seeing the huge numbers marching against them. One of these subordinates, Gizgo, said that the numbers of the enemy were astonishing. Hannibal, in the words of Plutarch, replied seriously, quote, There is one thing, Gizgo, yet more astonishing, which you take no notice of. End quote. When Gizgo asked what it was, Hannibal answered, quote, In all those great numbers before us, there is not one man called Gizgo. End quote. The officers burst out laughing at this unexpected jest, and as they rode down from their vantage point, their mirth spread. The common soldiers, seeing their general and officers laughing, believed that it must be from contempt of the enemy, and so regained their courage. Despite his cheerful demeanor, Hannibal knew that it would require more than scorn to drive the Romans from the field. To conquer against such a numerically superior foe, Hannibal at this time had only 40,000 infantry and 10,000 cavalry, according to Polybius. He would have to seize and exploit every advantage possible. Thus, on the day of battle, August 2nd, 216 BC, Hannibal deployed his men with their backs to the wind so that clouds of dust swept into the faces of the advancing Romans. He also noticed that Varro had formed the maniples of each legion in a much deeper formation than usual, a move akin to that Regulus made at the Battle of the Bagratus River in the First Punic War 39 years before. Seeing the Romans' disposition, Hannibal set about countering it with a revolutionary plan of his own. In most armies, and especially ancient armies, winning ground, quote-unquote, by forcing your enemy to fall back, usually signals that your side is winning. The Roman legion had perfected this model of fighting, since it was designed to allow maximum flexibility, along with maximum concentration of force, to break through enemy lines. Hannibal himself had experienced this in his two prior victories at Trebia and Trasimene. In both battles, his center had been broken by a remnant of Romans who had fought their way out of the disaster which enveloped their comrades on the flanks. To counter this, Hannibal took the innovative step of purposefully weakening his center line. On his left wing, anchored against the river Aufidus, he placed his Gallic and Iberian cavalry. Moving from left to right, he then placed half of his crack Libyan veterans who, as we remember from last episodes, now bore Romanized equipment. In the center, he placed alternating groups of Spaniards and Gauls, the latter forming his least reliable contingents followed by the remaining half of his Libyan spearmen. Finally, on the extreme right wing stood his Numidian cavalry. 
Now that he had intentionally weakened his center, Hannibal took another unusual step. He led his army forward and staggered groups until it formed a semicircular crescent formation, with the Gauls and Spaniards bulging at the front towards the Roman lines, followed by the Libyans at the sides and the cavalry at the extreme tips of the semicircle away from the Romans. The Gallic and Iberian horse on the left were led by Hasdrubal, a different Hasdrubal from Hannibal's brother, who commanded in Spain. Hannibal's nephew, Hanno, led the Numidians on the right flank, although Livy reports that the experienced light cavalry commander Marhabal commanded the Numidians instead. Hannibal himself, with his brother Mago, held the most dangerous position in the center with the alternating groups of Gauls and Spaniards. Many of his men must have wondered at this unorthodox approach and the instructions he gave them following this, but their trust in Hannibal was too great to admit any dispute. As mentioned earlier, the Romans deployed in their habitual triplex acis, or checkerboard formation. Albeit Varro had intentionally deepened the ranks in order to increase the punching power, quote-unquote, of his legionaries. Thus his principes stood right behind the line of hastati, instead of leaving them room to withdraw. Although this theoretically increased his power in the center of the Roman line, it also decreased his flexibility and narrowed the Roman line's frontage to the point that, although the legionaries outnumbered the Carthaginians by just under two to one, the armies had roughly the same front, leaving Hannibal's flanks relatively secure. Besides the host of legionaries, the cream of Roman commanders were conspicuous in the ranks. Paulus, who had advised strenuously to the end against giving battle, took his place in command of the right flank. The impetuous Varro held the left flank, and the prior year's consuls, Gnaeus Servilius Geminus and Marcus Atilius Regulus, commanded the deep Roman center. Servilius, as we remember from episode 38, had served as co-consul with the hapless Flaminius, who had perished at Trasimene. While if the name Marcus Atilius Regulus sounds familiar, it is because this was the son of the same Regulus who had been defeated by the Spartan Xanthippus and captured at the Battle of the Bagratus River in the First Punic War. Besides these, Marcus Minucius Rufus, the former nemesis and lieutenant of Fabius the Delayer, was also present in the ranks. Rome was taking no chances. She had sent nearly all of her great men to lead her greatest army raised to date. Thus arrayed, the battle began. Fortunately for posterity, nearly all of our main sources have descriptions of the Battle of Cannae. Polybius, Plutarch, and Appian all contain accounts of the battle. However, since this is one of the greatest battles of antiquity, and indeed one of the most famous battles of all time, it bears quoting the play-by-play -play version given by the Second Punic War's greatest chronicler, Livy albeit in abbreviated form. Quote, the battle cry rang out. The auxiliaries leapt forward, and with the light troops the action began. Soon the Gallic and Spanish horse on the Carthaginian left were engaged with the Roman right. Lack of space made it an unusual cavalry encounter. The antagonists were compelled to charge head-on, front to front. There was no room for outflanking maneuvers as the river on one side and the massed infantry on the other pinned them in, leaving them no option but to go straight ahead. The horses soon found themselves brought to a halt, jammed close together in the inadequate space, and the riders set about dragging their opponents from the saddle, turning the contest more or less into an infantry battle. It was fierce while it lasted, 
but that was not for long. The Roman cavalry were forced to yield and hurriedly withdraw. Towards the end of this preliminary skirmish, the regular infantry became engaged. For a time, it was an equal struggle, but at last the Romans, after repeated efforts maintaining close formation on a broad front, drove in the opposing Gallic and Spanish troops, which were in wedge formation, projecting from the main body, and too thin to be strong enough to withstand the pressure. As these hurriedly withdrew, the Romans continued their forward thrust, carrying straight on through the broken column of the enemy, now flying for their lives, until they reached the Carthaginian center, after which, with little or no resistance, they penetrated to the position held by the African auxiliaries. These troops held the two Carthaginian wings, drawn back a little, while the center, held by the Gauls and Spaniards, projected somewhat forward. The forcing back of the projected wedge soon leveled the Carthaginian front. Then, as under the increasing pressure the beaten troops still further retired, the front assumed a concave shape, leaving the Africans on, as it were, the two projecting ends of the crescent. Recklessly, the Romans charged straight into it, and the Africans on each side closed in. In another minute, they had further extended their wings and closed the trap in the Roman rear. The brief Roman success had been in vain. Now, leaving the Gauls and Spaniards, on whom they had done much execution as they fled, they turned to face the Africans. This time the fight was by no means on equal terms. The Romans were surrounded, and which was worse, they were tired men matched against a fresh and vigorous enemy. Meanwhile, the Roman left, where the allied horse confronted the Numidians, was also engaged. It was at this juncture, when in one part of the field the Romans had but little left but to try to save their skins, while in another, though hope was almost gone, they continued to fight with dogged determination, that Hasdrubal withdrew the Numidians from the center, where they were not being used to much advantage, and sent them in pursuit of the scattered fugitives, at the same time ordering the Spaniards and Gauls to move to the support of the Africans, who by now were almost exhausted by what might be called butchery rather than battle. Paulus, on the other wing, had been severely wounded by a sling stone right at the start of the fight. Nonetheless, at the head of his men, in close order, he continued to make a number of attempts to get at Hannibal, and in several places succeeded in pulling things together. He had with him a guard of Roman cavalry, but the time came when Paulus was too weak even to control his horse, and they were obliged to dismount. The enemy's victory was now assured, and the dismounted cavalry fought in the full knowledge of defeat. They made no attempt to escape, preferring to die where they stood. The whole force was now broken and dispersed. Those who could recovered their horses, hoping to escape. Lentulus, the military tribune, as he rode by, saw the consul Paulus sitting on a stone and bleeding profusely. Lucius Aemilius, he said, you only in the sight of heaven are guiltless of this day's disaster. Take my horse while you still have some strength left, and I am here to lift you up and protect you. Do not add to the darkness of our calamity by a consul's death. Without that, we have cause enough for tears. God bless your courage, Paulus answered, but you have little time to escape. Do not waste it in useless pity. Get you gone and tell the Senate to look to Rome and fortify it with strong defenses before the victorious enemy can come, and take a personal message too. Tell Quintus Fabius that while I lived I did not forget his counsel, and that I remember it still in the hour of death. As for me... Let me die here amongst my dead soldiers. 
I would not a second time stand trial after my consulship, nor would I accuse my colleague to protect myself by incriminating another. The two men were still speaking when a crowd of fugitives swept by. The Numidians were close on their heels. Paulus fell under a shower of spears, his killers not even knowing whom they killed. End quote. Hannibal's greatest hour had come. His brilliant plan, what would become known as the coveted double envelopment in military annals, had allowed him to surround a numerically superior foe with his smaller army. As Livy describes, the Carthaginian semicircle turned inside out as the advancing Romans, thinking that victory was within their grasp, drove the retreating Gauls and Spaniards before them. They only realized their peril when the Libyan spearmen attacked them on the flanks and the Gallic, Iberian, and Numidian cavalry charged them in the rear. When what they had thought were routing Gauls turned to fight once again in the center, the encirclement was complete. Their own momentum had been turned against them. Pinned together due to their close ranks, many soldiers could not even raise their arms to defend themselves in the press. The slaughter was on an immense scale by any standard. Livy reports that 50,000 Romans out of the 87,000 who took the field perished, a staggering 57% casualty rate. Polybius reports an even higher figure, claiming that 70,000 Romans lost their lives, with a further 10,000 captured following the fighting and only 3,000 managing to escape. By contrast, Hannibal lost a mere 4,000 Gauls, 1,500 Iberians and Libyans, and 200 horsemen. The historian Adrian Goldsworthy compares the Roman losses on this single day to, quote, the mass slaughter of the British army on the first day of the Somme Offensive in 1916, end quote. The psychological impact of the Romans themselves could not have been any less scarring. What is even more staggering than these extraordinary figures are the names which were recorded among the Roman dead at Cannae. Besides the reigning consul Paulus, both former consuls, Servilius and Regulus, as well as Fabius's old lieutenant, Minucius, died fighting among the common soldiers. In addition to these, a number of other senior Roman leaders perished. Two quaestors, 29 military tribunes, a number of ex-consuls, praetors, and aediles, and 80 distinguished men of senatorial rank. By a quirk of fate, however, the man responsible for the disaster, Varro, escaped with a few followers. The Battle of Cannae holds a hallowed place in the records of military history. Since Hannibal's double envelopment first appeared on that Apulian plain, generals and commanders from that time to this have obsessed over recreating his singular achievement. The historian Theodore Aurelit Dodge states that, quote, the whole battle from the Carthaginian standpoint is a consummate piece of art having no superior, few equal, examples in the history of war. End quote. Dwight D. Eisenhower, the supreme commander of the Allied Expeditionary Force in World War II, wrote, quote, Every ground commander seeks the battle of annihilation. So far as conditions permit, he tries to duplicate in modern war the classic example of Cannae. End quote. Frederick the Great constantly sought to recreate Cannae in his countless wars, and General Norman Schwarzkopf cited Cannae as a direct inspiration for Operation Desert Storm in 1991. 
Neither Schwarzkopf nor Eisenhower were the first Americans to employ Kenai as a model, however. My fellow South Carolinians will be interested to note that that honor goes to General Daniel Morgan, who defeated the infamous, to us Americans at least, Lieutenant Colonel Sir Bannister Tarleton at the Battle of Cowpens, achieving what is arguably the tactical masterpiece of the American War for Independence. Perhaps the most famous use of the double envelopment, though, would be in the Schlieffelin Plan of World War I, where the chief of the German general staff, Alfred von Schlieffelin, as well as his predecessor, Helmuth von Moltke, used Kenai as a model to attempt a double envelopment of the Allied forces in the opening phases of the war. Although the German double envelopment failed then, it would later be used to great effect in World War II during the Blitzkrieg. But despite all these later battlefield attempts, Hannibal Barca was the first to successfully achieve the double envelopment, and few have ever matched the scale of that achievement. As he surveyed the magnitude of his victory in the waning hours of August 2nd, 216 BC, Hannibal discussed the Carthaginians' next moves with his officers. Marhabal, his cavalry commander, urged him earnestly to order an immediate march on Rome herself. Livy reports him saying, quote, Sir, if you want to know the true significance of this battle, let me tell you that within five days you will take your dinner in triumph on the capital. I will go first with my horsemen. The first knowledge of our coming will be the sight of us at the gates of Rome. You are but to follow. End quote. When Hannibal declined Marhabal's advice, Plutarch reports his fiery lieutenant replied, quote, you know Hannibal how to gain a victory, but not how to use it. End quote. History would debate this decision for millennia to come. But for today, a third ringing, crushing defeat had been inflicted on Rome by this seemingly invincible general from Carthage. Surely now, after all she had lost, Rome would concede defeat. Next time. We will find out how Rome responded to the darkest day of her history. If you have had some difficulty following the maneuvers of the Battle of Cannae, feel free to check out the Layman's Historian website, where I have pictures demonstrating the battle using my 28mm ancient miniatures collection. I have also included diagrams of the battle for those who prefer that method of following the army's movements. The links are in the description. Additionally, if you are enjoying the Layman's Historian, please consider leaving a review to support the show. I'm also excited to announce that The Layman's Historian is now available on Spotify if you prefer listening there. Until next time, take care and read more history. History.